and secret police and disinformation and everything. Yet still, a people who is not necessarily very revolutionary, we still came out in 1989 uh, and uh, overthrew him because we understood it's fucked. We can't live in such a society eventually. Like the kettle boils over at some point. And I guess the thing that breaks my heart and is disappointing, but somehow not unexpected, is that for Russia, the kettle never seems to boil over. Yes, they have revolutions, but it, it never seems to boil over in the direction of can we have a decent life or a good relationship with others or not oppress other people? That's like a um, fundamental thing they can't seem to get their heads around. That's it. We are very big ghetto. Okay, uh, Slava, I think you want to answer and then we'll go to Trump. Uh Yes, uh, I just want to follow the Adrian, great uh, explanation. And to answer to your question, uh, how the Ukrainians break out from this uh, oppression, from this uh, evil, uh, evil. Uh, so as I see now, how I started to see now, uh, comparing to the Russians and what they're saying, that Ukrainian, it is single Ukrainian, it is independent unit. And he, like uh, Ukra single Ukrainian, don't want to be dependent on the government, on the other people. He tried to make uh, good for them, uh, themselves, but uh, willing to share and people don't don't look uh, to some give so to, to give so to someone gives them. So it's like comparing to the Russian, they still live in, in the idea that government gonna does everything for them. This is this great social socialism and they just sit, do nothing, pretending to work, pretending to um, build something and they, they wait for when the uh, government gives them anything. But at this time, Ru uh, Russia, this uh, um, previous to the Russia, it was, um, uh, how to say, well, no, I mean, they, they just using this uh, passive uh, uh, citizens in the war and other uh, situations. So Ukrainians in different this way because they don't want to be uh, dependent on someone and the independent and they uh, live, live, live this way um, independent from anyone. Thank you. Thank you, Slava. How you doing, Charlie? So, yeah, I think I think Adrian uh, made some really good points about like the to, to me, like I was reading about Pol Pot uh, recently and thinking about uh, Stalinism and uh, the, the Khmer Rouge and the parallels between the idea of developing a revolutionary consciousness, which is what allows individual actors to do incredibly violent things on their own initiative. And B, it also allows for an ambiguity. Um, Russians don't need order to commit atrocities. If we look at Christopher Browning's work uh, and Goldfogen's work uh, that talked about the, the Nazi genocide, the idea of finding people who are willing executioners or people who just didn't say no. They had the chance to say no. They had the chance to say, I'm not going to shoot this 12-year-old girl in the back of the head into a pit of her cousins and family. 
not going to do it. But they did. It. It's not hard to get people to. Uh, but it's 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 an entirely different thing to get people to do horrid things without specific orders. Uh, we don't know to what extent in Bucha or in any of these places that Russians are acting independently. But we do know that it's entirely possible that the acculturation of Dudovshina, uh, which is like ritualized uh, ultra-hazing uh, sexual abuse and physical abuse in the Russian army, a uh, continuation of Soviet practices that's only gotten worse, um, that the sort of mentality of aggression and the idea of like what an alpha male is, right? all inform the consciousness that allows people to to act out in incredibly violent ways. And it also allows uh, a government to claim that it's about their individual responsibility. And this was very important for, uh, for Pol Pot and for Stalin, because someone realized that they had to take a risk and act out on their individual idea in order to avoid repression, right? In order to avoid looking weak. And it later becomes a pretext, the, the compromise of you doing something that is technically illegal or that is disapproved of, or when there's a need for a purge, you've committed a major crime, not the regime. You've accomplished the regime's goals and you've committed it. So I think it's the, 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 the terrifying distinction is you don't need to give orders. Even if orders and plans are being made toward a genocide, it's something that has been nurtured in, into the Russian people. I don't want to say anything about nature because I don't believe that people have a nature necessarily. Uh, or uh, I, I think it's definitely a case of nurture uh, in this context, but it's something that's deeply ingrained. Um, the idea that one must act out personally and the idea that... Uh, if, if you pay the consequence, it's, it's more about fate and destiny, and it's not about legality. One more thing. There's a remake by Mikhalkov, this Soviet film director whose grandfather wrote the Soviet national anthem and his father revised it. Mikhalkov made a remake of the film 12 Angry Men called 12, a brilliant work uh, of filmmaking. At the very end of this film, uh, the, the plot goes that 12 people have found a person who's ostensibly guilty of a crime and through the process of jury deliberation, find out that this person is not guilty and make the right decision. That's the original plot of 12 Angry Men. At the end of the Russian version of this film, uh, the focus is taken to an icon. Maybe it's the Kazanskaya. I don't know which icon of the uh, Mary that they focus on. But the implication is that it's the Russian soul or Russian spirituality that allows people to make the right decision. So it's not about logic, it's not about deliberation, it's not about legality, it's about something more relative, something more, you know, that's like an offense against the original idea of the film. And I think it's like, that film illustrates like the core misunderstanding in the Russian mentality of what legality and good and evil are. Quick thing, uh, Mihalkov, uh, amazing filmmaker, scumbag of a person, if you're talking about Nikita. Yeah, he's a piece of shit, but yeah, uh, a talented one. Language.
I'm so sorry, excuse me. Uh, sorry, Ben, uh, just anecdotal. So we studied him in uh, film school uh, for his film in the 70s, and he did make some good films since then, but uh, uh, he's a very buddy-buddy with uh, Mr. Putin. And um, I think since um, someone told me, I didn't see the video, uh, after the Russian invasion started, he appeared on Russian TV with a list of cultural figures who should be ostracized because they're not friendly to Russia. And he basically made the enemies list of uh, Russians who were not pro-Putin. So this is the kind of person he, he is. Yeah, not, not the greatest guy. I have to say, always avoid me. Um, Mikolaj, do you want to join us on the movie critiques or do you have something else? Uh, you were talking about the uh, Russian soul and the difference between uh, Ukrainians and Russians. Uh, um, no, I, don't, I don't think we were talking about the Russian soul. There was part of that. That's what I heard. And, yeah, uh, yeah, we were saying how it's used as an excuse. Not, we weren't addressing the subject itself. Uh, as an excuse, you know, the thing is that that's what's happened right now. And, the, you know, this atrocity, uh, atrocities in uh, in Ukraine. The question is if the, well, I don't want to be defender or uh, devil's advocate, but uh, the, we need to remember that uh, main, the, the soldiers mainly who, who fighting in the, in the Ukraine, then mainly from the, uh, well, Asian uh, Republic of Russia. So there is a lot of Buryats. There is a lot of, you know, uh, different, well, nations, even not re Russians, to be honest. So uh, that, that, can be, that can be a problem because the same was in the Second World War. I, you know, when you read uh, what was happened in, the, in Poland or in Germany, in Second World War, when the Russians well liberated uh, these areas, and uh, it was exactly the same things. Nothing has changed. Mikola, I'm sorry, you, I, I didn't catch your the link between your two trains of thought. Uh, how the fact that there's a lot of uh, minorities in the Russian army is um, uh, has an impact on the on 1945. I, I don't get it. Uh, I just noticed that, to be honest, it's nothing has changed over there because, uh, look, the, the Russians are fighting with the uh, on the hands of minorities, and uh, the thing is, maybe maybe that's the, 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 the that's some kind of the problem. I understand that Russians are the you know they have a mentality of you know uh, slaves because it was. From the beginning, you know, the the, the and it's not only communism, but uh, when you when you look, you know, uh, check the the, the 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 far past, they always be being treated as a you know uh, as a slaves, and there wasn't like that like you know in Ukraine in, in the when it was you know in ancient uh, times or or uh, you know Cossack times when there there was a well, maybe not democracy, but uh, it was rather close to anarchy. But there was that someone said they were independent, but the Russians uh, never been. And uh, you know the the people who they conquered, 
they've been treated as a slaves. So maybe that's the, that's the problem that they always been treated as a slaves, and they when they go and fight with someone, they treated other people as a slaves as well. So I think that's the problem. I think I'm sorry. I think there's a lot of historical reach, and it it verges on a, a sort of racist argument. Honestly, and um, it's no, 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 no. It's no, it, it, I, it's definitely, it it's, it's definitely. I'm, I'm not talking talking about you know. It's not definitely racist or or, or something like that. I'm just I'm just saying that, uh, you know, when when uh, you, you when you've been treated, um, you know, this this uh, connection with this uh, example of the uh, you know. Uh, about this family with the problems, you see, and uh, when you've been treated as a slave and you conquer someone and you treat another another you know nations as a slaves, this they start to behave as you know that one who was treated as you as a slave, and maybe that's that's the problem, and uh, because you know and the Russians and the you know these smaller nations have been treated like that, you know, for the, de not decades, but right now it's centuries, even 200, 300 years. And they've been treated as a slaves and they behave like that. And when they can, you know, uh, show someone their power right now, they, they, they behave like that. It's, it's maybe, maybe that's the problem. Uh, maybe. I, I'm, I'm not sure it's the most fruitful uh, way of uh, addressing history. To the extent that you're right, it's quasi-impossible to, to demonstrate it. So uh, I, I think we can keep it as, a, as, a, as an interesting theory, but uh, I personally don't see the, the interest in uh, discussing it further because you cannot either be proven right or wrong. But thanks a lot, Nikolai. Uh, We'll go to Slava and then Charlie and then Lucia, who was hidden at the bottom of my uh, screen. So I did not see him. I'm sorry, Lucia, but Slava, Charlie, and Lucia. Slava Ukraini, Heroem Slava. So uh, to respond to Mikolai, uh, so good theories, but uh, from my conversation with the Russian, uh, Russian and not in a different ethnical Russian, what you said that this. Asian type and the different. Um, I had uh, a week ago with the uh, Nigerian who lives in the Russia around the 20 years. So uh, he is complete uh, natural Russian. He's not. Uh, he keeps uh, uh, Russian narrative. He was not a slave in the Russia. He says that he is feeling okay in the Russia. He's love Russia. He's expressing his love. His great Russia, his, this, uh, for him it's great. And he's keeping this Russian narrative that it is Ukrainian, NATO, uh, to fault for this war. But war in the Ukraine, not in Russia. So uh, to Mikolai, um, it's, it's false. When you live in the Russia at least 20 years, uh, you're going to be a typical Russian who have this imperialistic idea and you just uh, reject any civilization and not about the slave, but you are um, responsible to what is happening in Ukraine and other countries because it is the way of the Russian, Russians. Thank you. Thanks, Charlie? 
right? And I'm not trying to to, to bring up racism is like it, it, there's a definite thing. I, I said like it verges on it, and I, I I think that the important thing here, because I do think there's a sense in which like we can talk about like, but it's a little more 19th century philosophy, the idea of a slave and master mentality, and it it, it has some other implications of old anthropology and the psychology of will, but to me it's about the monopoly on violence. Uh, and this is what I was talking about before in the idea of 12 or 12 angry men. The monopoly on violence, you, you, you just don't do violent things in a normal state. The state does violent things. And a good state or a state that is adapt and that is capable of living on and capable of serving its role in bringing water and electricity and defense to communities uh, is very... Uh, cautious about how and when it uses violence. Uh, to me, the Russian mentality, ha- the Russian state is, is not a claimant on a monopoly of violence. The idea of Eurasianism allowed czarists, allowed anarchists, allowed God seekers, as they were called, and various intellectuals to form a community that ended up supporting Stalin, right? People that were diametrically opposed, uh, ostensibly, to the idea of Soviet socialism ended up joining the cause for the sake of Russia. There's a permissiveness, a telepathy between imperialists. Uh, Of course, the Russian state put a few skinheads in jail. I can think of a couple famous incidents in the 90s, but there's also lots of like uh, Kadyrov and, you know, uh, the the Night Wolves. And there's lots of organizations that are violent and militant that don't align necessarily with the Russian state's particular view of order that have more empowerment of violence. It's about license, right? And, of course, you can answer later, and Russia can claim the monopoly on violence, but it's, it's a given in Ukraine or in Europe, that if you commit a violent act against an enemy of the state, you will be punished for it, right? You are not the state. In Russia, I think the, the, there's a much more mafia-esque corruption sort of allowance, you know, a sort of check or an account that's opened up for people who are ideologically close. Uh, and I think it also has some reflection on the way that war is waged. Thanks. Um, so we're going to move to Lucien and then Luca. Before that, for those of you who have not yet uh, retweeted Luis' um, tweet that is in the nest, please do so. Uh, that would be fantastic if we could reach 100, 100 retweets uh, by 12 today. Uh, there's uh, well over 300 people on the on the on the space, so please retweet. That would be that would be fantastic. Um, it's the uh, a request to uh, um, massage, uh, Bruno Massage to come and, and join us uh, on the space. So don't hesitate to uh, like and retweet. Great. Uh, so Lucien and then Luca. Yeah, I want to continue to support the narrative of Zaria uh, because I think it's very apt. And um, many, many other speakers, uh, but I do want to 
suggest that people uh, continue to support this space and um, continue to, uh, I do plan to uh, add an additional financial contribution to the space. Um, and many complicated spaces around this space. Um, sir, but, sir, Lucien, Lucien, just to be clear, the contribution is not to the space. The contribution is to a charity called Maria A that helps Ukrainians, uh, the government, the military, and the society. Uh, uh, we are 100% free and 100% uh, not paid. But, yeah, co continue. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that's within my uh, space. I, I really appreciate the conversation and uh, I have friends who are on the front lines of the conflict, people I know personally, people I met offline, uh, people I know personally and um, people I communicate with. And it's tough, it's hard to, you know, configure how you communicate within this space Uh, without compromising their safety and all that. and um, But it's everything Zarya was saying is very true and uh, very concisive. And Chuck, uh, also a uh, military speaker, was very concisive. But I do want to uh, hope to interject a speaker within this uh, space about civil society within Ukraine and a person I know uh, personally um, and uh, about kind of some narrative about Ukraine extracting itself from the Russian space. Because if you're gonna uh, try to build a restaurant business in Ukraine, then the plates and the drink the glassware and all that it's coming from russia because of cheap russian energy and russia has dismantled this vast uh, uh photovoltaic network in in southern ukraine and just like hauled it out Lulu, 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 i'm sorry um you just said something that really whetted my appetite did you say that you you wanted to contact someone who would come and speak to us about uh, the Ukrainian society on the space? Yeah, Vika Vidor, Vidor, Vidorchenko. Um, okay, can you can you send me can we can you send me your contacts? And uh, I, we'll, I would we'll, like to do that. Yeah, she's fantastic. in Brussels this week and um, working okay. on Ukrainian integration with the, the EU. Okay, so. that's splendid. That's absolutely splendid. We'd love to, uh, I'm sure we'd love to have her. Uh, more generally, we'd love to have as many uh, Ukrainian voices and uh, about Ukrainian uh, society because, uh, well, as, as, I've, as I've repeated uh, several times, personally, in as much as I support Ukraine, I don't know it very well. Uh, and that not very well carries a lot of uh, work. So that, that, that'd be fantastic. Fantastic if you could do that. Please stop everything you do. Uh, stop talking. Send me that. Send me that DM. Uh, and um, uh, meanwhile, uh, Luca is gonna is gonna sorry, Lisa, for interrupting you, but you're really exciting me at this point, and I'm highly excitable right now. So, Luca Petkotvezia. Yeah, thanks. thanks, man. I'll do that right away. Yeah. Yeah.
Merci bien. Uh, merci bien. Um, um, Charlie, I want to try to understand better um, this very excellent point that you made about the violence, um, condoning violence in the situation of Russia. I want to, I want you maybe to briefly tell me more about what's behind that what is the strategy uh if there is one or the impact or the effects uh, and and then i'll try if i understand it correctly then i try to make a point please i mean i, I there's 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 something of a brilliant to the the stalinist idea of postmodernism uh and, and and i i think postmodernism gets shit on a lot for the the sort of relativism that the far left and the far right will try to Uh, make out of it. But what I'm talking about is the idea of understanding that your enemy will align with you, uh, especially if it's a fake enemy that you've created out of nothing. They'll, they'll happen to align with you on certain positions. And um, I, I think there's, the, like, the argument can go in a very bad direction. Like, there were books about how Stalin grew up in Georgia, and this is a masculinist violent culture and he was beaten and this is why he's a monster well there's plenty of people in georgia who are not masculine it's not violent don't beat their children and there's plenty of people who are beaten all the time and don't become monsters right so i i don't want to talk about an essentialism here it really is a deliberate sort of lenience when it comes to uh movements that will serve your cause that are later uh, punished for their deviation or their power. Um, the Jewish anti-fascist committee is an example, except they weren't doing anything violent. They just were gathering money to defeat the Nazis, which is a very important thing. They were the only real civil society organization to be born in the Soviet Union. And that's one of the reasons they were destroyed. So it, it's not just about violence. It's about using discourses to forward an agenda and then punishing people for those discourses, right? Okay. Stop there. Stop there. Then I think mm -hmm. I got it. I got it. Okay. So let me say then what I wanted to say. So um, in retrospect, um, maybe similar approach to um, the essay in uh, uh, the early day of Nazi Germany uh, allowed to go around and terrorize people to then just turn around, point their f uh, the finger uh, from Berlin to München and say, look what was happening there, um, and then come back and uh, effectively, like, you know, take, you know, more control of uh, people's lives something around that and something more concerning because they do feel that Russia is cancer as in the, what we see in Russia, um, what's scary about them like stepping into Ukraine is that we can see it, but they've been metastasizing inside our societies for a long time. And, i don't think that the, the 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 violence in some of the societies whether it's um extreme uh, uh, um, you know extreme measures for second amendment uh, uh, 
type of people, whether it's like Russia trying to infiltrate the NRA or whether it's uh, uh, the famous stand down and stand back uh, comment uh, that we've seen recently. I, I can see how like this seemed to form uh, um, kind of like a, a consistent approach. You know what I'm saying? Um, and 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 I would like and I would like to understand if if uh, if uh, you see it the same way this kind of metastasizing of these techniques that are successful in Russia but could move to other countries too. Very briefly, yes, I think I think there's something to be studied there. I think the essay was more of like putting down the hoi polloi and trying to build a serious government instead of like a, a revolutionary beer putsch street party. Um, so it's, it's, it's something a little more, less methodical, um, and more a reaction of the moment, but yeah, it's a parallel. And I think it's a good example of, uh, uh, the idea of useful idiots, right? You know, I, I think a sophisticated Russian, uh, imperialist thinker, if there are any in, in sitting in Moscow understands that, uh, you know, butchering people, is a, a, a foolish thing to do, but it's it's something that can be blamed on the Ukrainians. It can be blamed on the individual. Uh, it it goes to support the cause, you know, in the end. So it's an acceptable thing. All societies making war will accept extreme violence. Uh, I mean, but that's I think that's a major difference between Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, and like the Chinese Communist Party is that the Chinese saw violence as a necessary evil. And the the Khmer Rouge glorified violence as something like uh, exultant and something transgressing and transcendent. And I think there's more of like a nudge in the Russian mentality toward just just take it, just just do it. Thank you. I understand. Thank you, Charlie. Um, ha. Uh, Linda, I think you're first, and then we'll go back to Adrian. Maybe you found the film that we were talking about. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I think this is a useful topic, actually. Um, and the gentleman uh, that spoke here several minutes earlier and unfortunately mentioned the word Asian, I, I, my perception is that he was not saying that in a disparaging way, but it was um, a, a way of... Um, the only word that he could think of in order to describe uh, a, a cultural norm. Um, that's my perception anyway. But I'm going to suggest that the next time, um, if you guys think, agree that this is an important topic, I'm going to suggest that uh, the next time. Linda? Can someone hear, hear Linda? No, 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 no. Linda's dropped. Okay. Drop her down from speaker. No, yeah, yeah. By the way, I take the opportunity to salute everybody. It's 1 a.m. here in California. So good night. Thank you very much. Ciao, Luca. Sleep well. Ciao, good night, au revoir. Okay, Adrian, you've managed to jump the queue. Mm, I always do. Uh, bye, Luca. I always appreciate your insights. And uh, I uh, remember from a few days ago that even if you live uh, in California, you do have a Vespa. So keeping some Italianness with you, that's nice. Um, I don't know, maybe we'll drift from the topic uh, now that Domen is here and we speak about other things. But I just wanted to, Daniel, my Romanian compatriot, uh, wanted to mention on, asked me to mention on this topic about the Pitesht experiment. I don't know if you know about it. It was in Romania. Uh, it's 
if you know the Stanford prison experiment, it's something similar, but uh, on a more horrible scale. So basically in, P- in Pitesht prison, uh, prisoners, um, uh, political prisoners during the communist regime were uh, forced to be guards and uh, torture their other prisoners there uh, with the threat of violence. And uh, it was a horribly successful experiment. And it's a model that maybe somehow echoes the Khmer Rouge uh, in to some extent. In any case, um, Daniel posits, and I tend to agree with him, that uh, if we speak about Russian society, and uh, there is echoes of this in Solzhenitsyn, if you read the Gulag Archipelago, if uh, you tend to speak about Russian society, it seems like at a wide, wide level, it's this idea of the victim being turned into a jailer and then perpetuating this cycle for centuries. That's... um, that's the little input I wanted to bring. Thanks a lot. Um, so let's go back to Linda and then we'll ask Charlie. Yeah, thanks. I don't know what happened. I think it's a Twitter thing. I was dumped down into the listener thing. But anyway, um, yeah. And yes, the Stanford prison experiment uh, and the Milgram experiment as well that preceded it by a decade or two, a uh, decade and a half maybe. Um, but yeah, so I if... Linda, Linda, I'm sorry, you, you were cut off at the moment, you know, you were about to speak about something very important about Asia, and then you were cut off. Yes, and I was cut off, yes. And it's, so this is the same topic, yes. And someone here just a minute ago mentioned the Stanford prison experiment, which is in the same realm. Um, but I suggested that this time uh, Tom Zimbardo uh, is in the room. It, this might be an important enough topic to bring up. Even though I, my understanding is he's a clinical psychologist, and I believe that this is more in the topic area of cognitive linguist or social psychologist. But um, in my in my studies, you know, this is not my this is not my um, career. But in my, I do a lot of study. In my studies, um, uh, there are societies that are much more hierarchical than other societies. And this is a mental frame that's inculcated from babyhood, toddlerhood. And um, uh, there are indeed societies that are much more hierarchical, uh, meaning, you know, you know, king of the hill is the one that's in charge and the people that are below him, you know, have to succumb and some people are property, etc. And that emanates, you know, that resonates throughout society and some, and it, it happens to appear in some societies more than others. Um, it, and it can appear in um, misogyny um, as, you know, as well as um, other ways. Um, but um, it, it really, it gets into people's mental DNA. That's my non-psychology uh, word for it. And it's a way that people view the world. It's the, a worldview, a hierarchical, social hierarchy is a worldview. And we see it replicated, and it's hard to get rid of. It still replicates in the United States. We still have a slaveholder mentality in certain areas of the country, um, you know, that's 400 years old um and we can't 
we haven't been successful in getting rid of it yet. Um, and, you know, there's a lot Linda, of... Linda, Linda, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Just to, uh, a quick announcement. Um, yes. The, the, the American example you're, you're giving is probably perfectly correct. I'd just like to point out that every nation has skeleton of various sorts in its own uh, 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 closet. Closet, closet, yes, thank you. Uh, and it's not especially against American. It's just a, a good example, but nothing more. I think Linda's had technical problems again. Damn it, my fault. I'll get Linda up. We can uh, move to Charlie. So Ben, actually, actually go ahead. Actually, we're already get, getting Linda up. Sorry, Charlie. Just quicker than expected. Yeah, thanks. I got jumped again. Yeah, Twitter Spaces is really a problematical technical. So Linda, just to, just to clarify what happened. So Twitter cuts off your audio, and then we dump you down so that you know that uh, your your audio is lost. Because otherwise, you don't know that your audio is lost, and then you speak to your phone <laughs> to no one for yeah, yeah. for minutes, and then that's no good either. Gotcha. And I'll and I'll and I'll shut up because I've been rambling too much. But um, anyway, yeah, I think this is a topic worth talking about. And if there's any way, and you know, Tom Tom might be one who has connections who could get people who have the right credentials in order to speak to this because. I I think it's a real important aspect and it's really hard to get to. And, you know, people who, who have uh, ideas and opinions who don't have the right credentials like me, right. Um, have a tendency to speak as if they know what they're talking about <laughs> where, you know, I mean, it's this, you know, I, I can't tell you how a jet engine works. Right. And so it would be no, no good whatsoever if I got up here and opinionated about, you know, what a good, you know, what, what good qualities in a gen engine were versus bad qualities. I don't have the, I don't have the background for that. And, you know, other people for whatever reason uh, have a tendency to posit their worldview as um, being factual when they have no experience, what, you know, no academic uh, standing or experience in that realm whatsoever, which, you know, this is fine for, you know, talking across the fence to your neighbor, but uh, this is a big stage. And I think this topic is important enough to maybe get some people who actually do know this topic area. And the only one I can think of right now is Tom. But um, I guess it's what I'm going to, all I'm going to say is it's, it's just a big problem. And Yes, some societies have a bigger problem with this than other societies. So, all right, thank you. Think about, by the way, think about um, Clubhouse. I, I don't know, uh, you know, it is possible to simultaneously broadcast with Clubhouse with other um, um, like real-time uh, voice uh, applications. Uh, Clubhouse teams rather well with other ones. I have no idea the workload, what it would take in order to do that. But I will tell you that Clubhouse does not fail like Twitter Spaces fails. It's not, it, it just is, doesn't do it. Like all these problems with Twitter does not happen on Clubhouse. Anyway, so just an idea. And I'm going to say good night and thank you and hugs to everybody. <laughs> Good night, Linda. Sleep well. Thank you, Linda. Although, um, um, I just want to we're not going to go to... Yeah, sorry, oh, Ben, go ahead. Gonna... I have a charity thing after that. All right, fantastic. We're not going to go into clubhouses. 
we're all married, we have children. Uh, it's not, we're too old for that. Sorry, sorry, Linda. <laughs> On a much more serious topic, um, if you check out the next, the most recent post, um, you know those drones that Mia was fundraising for? Okay. So through those, Maria has partnered with, among other, the Ukrainian World Congress. The Ukrainian World Congress unites Ukrainians, let's say, at home and in the diaspora across the world. And there are literally millions of Ukrainians in the diaspora across the world. Uh, and it's a fantastic organization that's been, you know, around for decades. And I don't know them as well as I know the Slovenian World Congress. And I'll put it this way. If they're anything like the Slovenian World Congress, they are uh, absolutely amazing. So... Uh, you, Maria has, uh, is now working with them uh, and has been working with them on the 10 Fury drones that are going to be used by Ukrainian recce teams. Um, and as soon as there's good feedback on those, uh, they're going to start working on another batch of 10 Fury drones together with uh, Unite for Ukraine, sorry, Unite with Ukraine, uh, which is the, the action of the Ukrainian World Congress. Uh, just another, you know, level of legitimization of uh, of Maria with more major Ukrainian organizations, uh, and there's a nice write up up there by the Ukrainian World Congress and United Ukraine uh, that also has a couple of quotes from uh, Colonel Melanie Lake, the Maria Aid Chairwoman. Um, just uh, check that out if you want to. It's a it's a quick, easy read that basically tells you how cool those drones are as well. And those drones are bloody amazing. So the interesting story about those drones is they they were actually kind of designed in collaboration with a team from RIA to kind of fit the specifications of uh, what the recce teams out at the front line wanted, right? Uh, and think of it like this. If you can get a drone to fly over enemy lines, you don't need to risk a, a recce platoon uh, to do that instead sometimes. And that can literally save lives as well. Charlie. So I, I appreciated a lot of what Linda had to say. I, I do disagree in some way that I think a lot of different kinds of people from various backgrounds can have crucial opinions on social dynamics. Uh, social sciences are not sciences. Um, and rocket science is. Right? There, You either know or you don't know. Um, I think... As an academic, most of the most profound discoveries I've made have been talking to people who weren't academics, but had a, a purchase on an event from personal experience or a connection that they understood somehow. Um, and I, I do think it's worth it to sort it out. And I think that the hardest thing about it is sometimes uh, we, we make vulgar arguments that aren't terribly nuanced, that actually have a lot of truth behind them. Right. And we don't necessarily understand like uh, academics or not. Right. Like w those particular nuances or we're not thinking about them or we don't mean to imply certain things. But like to me, I think the, the sort of discussion of like the dynamics trying to wrap our heads around this is crucially important because we sitting in this room, uh, we're on a big stage, like you said. But everyone in here is going to be on smaller stages, talking to relatives in Europe or America and people who may not understand these things the way that we've learned about them, listening to experts here and talking about like we understand more about MLRS and M777s 
and helicopters than we ever could have imagined. And now we also understand a lot more about the dynamics of Russian Empire. And I, for one, like, you know, I, I learn a lot in this space about history. It's just great to sit here and listen to different people hash over it. And sometimes people say things that I profoundly agree with that also just make me want to bang my head into the wall because of, like, nuances that you might understand as a, an expert in a certain field, right? But, like, the thrust of something is ultimately true. It's, it's not wrong to say Russia is rotten and evil. Right. This this may not be the most profound necessary thing, but it may be something if that's the point we have to make to our relatives and our friends when we're on the small stage so that they give to Maria aid or, you know, will send me 50 bucks so I can buy Claire paint for an artist making a statue with a bunch of kids, you know, or wh whatever it is, whatever way that they can support Ukraine, uh, even if it's just not buying into Russian BS. Can I respond? Of course, of course. Go ahead. Um, I didn't catch who it was that just spoke, and I agree with him a large, very large part of what he just said, including, of course, just, you know, um, full uh, um, support of Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I'm going to recommend that... Um, there is a need, this is an important topic, and I think there's a need to be informed. Number one, I, I do disagree, you know, social sciences is a real science, you know. I mean, there are people who don't believe that it, it is, but I definitely do. But, um, and I think neuroscientists would agree with me rather than you. But um, nevertheless, there's a couple of authors um, that I think are worth reading and one of them is George Lakoff, who's written a number of books. It's L-A-K-O-F-F. -F. And another one is Ryan Eisler. So it's R-I-A-N-N-E, -N -N -E, last name E-I-S-L-E-R, Ryan Eisler. And she's written a lot of books. And it gets into this, both of them get into communication and uh, uh, culture the you know the the rocks upon which culture is built and how it's communicated and how it is replicated generation after generation after generation after generation both of them both of them get into that and they have the actual there's a lot of people that have a lot of creds that have written a lot of books but those are the two off the top the two authors off the top of my head and I would recommend anybody to read their books okay that's enough now I'm going definitely going to bed <laughs> Good night, Tina. Good uh, night. I'm just, I'm a historian. I'm Charlie, sorry. I'm Charlie, 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 you're not allowed to answer this question. Whether social sciences are science or not is not going to be answered today, not on the space. Everyone is entitled to his opinion. We're not going there. Otherwise, you know, what's next? The existence of God? Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, Ben. I'm a historian. I just, I had to say it. It may not be right, and I'm happy to be wrong, but, you know, I'm sticking with deductive reasoning here. Thank you. I do AI, so I know about deductive reasoning. <laughs> but I also know that a neuroscientist is a scientist. Okay, enough. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Anyway, Adrian, did you manage to find the film that Lucien was talking about? Uh, only on IMDb, but um, 
I would like to see it too, but um, it's a problem with these festival films that uh, usually you can't find them. If they're a bit older, it's hard to find them on streaming or even to pirate. So uh, I'm sorry, I can't uh, can't locate it. My film is on Ukrainian Netflix now uh, for whoever is in, Maz- in Ukraine. Mazeltov. <laughs> it's Takflix, it's not Netflix uh, but anyway, it's not to plug my film but uh, if you guys want to support Ukrainian uh, culture and cinema there is this uh, streaming service called Takflix so tanga, Tango Alpha Kilo Flix uh, .com and uh, you can uh, stream um, many Ukrainian films, many films about the war, many films about the war that started in 2014, but also some art films, some comedies. And now they have a program that uh, most of the revenue goes to filmmakers in Ukraine and uh, to support the war effort. So if you want to check out some Ukrainian culture, go to Takflix and uh, check out some movies. And again, the famous uh, check.com. Okay. I don't know, mate. I'm sorry. Um, I didn't get it. Sorry. <laughs> It's something with the gun, Chekhov. Yeah, Chekhov's gun. Never mind. Um, <laughs> I'll leave it there. So, oh, gosh. Um, that being said, at some point, uh, we're going to have to talk about China, the dragon in the room. Um, but this is maybe not the, the crowd for this. Um, But if, if someone wants to talk about China um, uh, and the relationship in, in relation with Ukraine, that would be fantastic. Uh, Minwen, Charlie, um, can, can I ask you a question regarding Yiddish? Um, I'm very... Uh, I'd like to know, is it, would you say that now Yiddish is part of the greater Ukrainian culture or is the fact that well, the Holocaust is, it's, it's lost? Uh, Is it just segregated as something else? That's a great question. Uh, I think it's a really complex story. Um, I I, I think for the most part, there's not a consciousness of Yiddish in Ukrainian culture. There's a lot of people that I talk to who don't know what it is. And a lot of people do. You can mention the the word on the street and people will understand. Some people will be like, do you mean Hebrew? And sometimes it's a very annoying argument. when someone thinks they know something and, you know, no, that's Hebrew. And you're just like, just shut up, please. But um, there's a, there are a lot of Yiddish studies in Ukraine. I mean, not a lot, but there are, right? The Kiev Mahila Academy, which is a, a, an outstanding, has an outstanding graduate program, has a Judaica center that has the archives of over 20 Yiddish writers who were notable writers in Yiddish, Ukrainian, and Russian uh, during the Soviet period. Uh, some of the, the great, not, I, I don't know, they, they are great poets, but some of the official poets, like uh, Maxim Rilski was a, a, a outstanding polyglot Ukrainian translator who actually translated from Yiddish into Ukrainian. This says something. If you're translating from a language, you, you know it near native. Right. You, you, you have to be an amateur to pick up a language that you don't I would never try and translate into Ukrainian. Right. So actually, like translating, he translated Ukrainian stuff into Yiddish, too. Right. And this is this is kind of an extraordinary thing. It shows like a deep cultural connectivity. 
Jeffrey Weidlinger, an outstanding historian of uh, Soviet Jewish culture, who wrote the, the main book on the Moscow State Yiddish Theater, uh, which was really un undermining Soviet norms in the 1930s and doing some very risky uh, things in defending Jewish national identity. Um, there, there were Yiddish speakers in Ukraine who were not Jewish. Ukrainians in shtetls and villages who spoke Yiddish because it was a common enough tongue. And there's not, that's what's gone is that kind of necessary interconnection for the most part. But there are academic programs and academic studies. And uh, I think a lot of the Jewish culture that's connected to Ukraine is connected to Israel. And it, it, that has to do with the graves of Hasidim, Hasidic Rebbes, uh, who were revered by uh, certain communities in Israel uh, who come to visit those sites. Uh, but since they're not connected to Yiddish, uh, it, it's it's kind of a bifurcated thing that had a, a, a culture that was spoken in Yiddish and uh, lived in Yiddish, but is now revered by a nation that speaks Hebrew and has, uh, I mean, active, I wouldn't say actively, but yeah, actively in some senses repressed Yiddish uh, in the earlier parts of its history. Uh, so, but it's still here and Ukrainian Yiddishists, I have a good friend who she just got a, a year at Stanford. Thank God. She's an outstanding translator, uh, from Yiddish to Ukrainian. And, uh, these people are very, very, very serious about presenting Jewish culture as an essential part of the fabric of Ukrainian culture. Uh, so I think that consciousness will grow. Uh, and a lot of other minority cultures have, I mean, Ukrainian nationalism is not integral. There's, there's no sense in like a monocultural nation. Ukrainians get that, that this is the borderland. The name of the country means borderland, you know, uh, the edge. And people understand that, that it's not, uh, that it's a multicultural space that makes up the Ukrainian identity. Thanks for that, uh, Charlie. Although there's one thing I don't, I don't understand. Isn't uh, Hebrew and Yiddish the same thing? What? Uh, I, you, you're making a difference between Hebrew and Yiddish. Is, isn't it the same thing? Just, you know. <laughs> Are you trolling me? <laughs> no. no, I'm, I'm, no, I'm okay, saying okay, you okay. okay. a softball. Because I was saying people will say this. No, Hebrew was, uh, uh, it's, there, there's ancient biblical Hebrew that in the late 19th century was made a modern language by individuals who taught their children a, a new language, really, and modernized ancient biblical Hebrew. And then there was the, the sort of Yiddish, which is uh, Judeo-Arabic, Aramaic, and biblical Hebrew mixed with uh, Middle High German, right? And that was the language of Eastern European Jewish communities was Yiddish. So it's it's a language, it's not a pidgin, but it's a hybridization over hundreds of years of several uh, in-group in languages and like the lingua franca of, of, at the time being of Germany. And Hebrew is very much something new and old. Okay, okay, thank you. Recast, so... redefined, and reinvented. Yeah, I think that's a, a more nuanced way to say it. Which is fine by me too. But by the way, it's not just uh, as you I said, know you do. Uh, 
the funny part is that what you just said, middle high German, that's true, of course, but in old lower German, the stuff which still lives on in what we call today Pladuch, um, you have so many uh, connectors. It is stunning. I just have to shut my eyes and listen to someone talk Yiddish and I can find my way and navigate through it. It's very strange. It's so trippy. You'll hear Dutch sometimes at an airport, and you're probably speaking Yiddish. Exactly. I've got right. exactly the same experience. That's good. You should ask Yehuda. Okay. He loves this topic. Um, yeah, but we're very lucky to have uh, Rabbi Axel Stein with us, so, uh, you know, it's always valued. But for the moment, I think uh, Patrick uh, wants to eat someone, so go ahead. Okay, good day, everybody. Um, just, I guess, staying not quite on the same topic. Um, I saw a, a, an announcement. Um, it was with the last 36 hours uh, where uh, Zelensky or someone from the Ukrainian state was, uh, I guess, first thanking the Israeli state for their assistance and their support. But then there was also an ask or almost like an, an admonishment uh, or a plea for something, more support at the end of the message. And I wasn't sure.